This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Lodro Rinsler discusses his new book, Love Hurts. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot introduces PW's Person of the Year. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And there is very little happening. I only have two yep. new books on the hardcover fiction list. Just uh, same old, same old, mm-hmm. other than that. Uh, the uh, top debut is at number three. It's Tom Clancy, True Faith and Allegiance by Mark Greeny. And uh, that's coming in at uh, just under 30,000 copies sold, which is very nice. Uh, And uh, this is the fourth book uh, that Greeny's written in the Jack Ryan series created by Tom Clancy. And, uh, you know, obviously Clancy's legacy in the thriller realm is still significant since his mm-hmm. book is his title, his name is probably bigger than greenies right. on the cover right uh but our review says that tom clancy fans should welcome this fast-paced book in which once again a small group of heroes tackles a daunting national security threat and uh, those who don't mind major improbabilities will be more than satisfied so that's at number three. Uh, also of note for the, the Thriller fans, um, the, the Whistler is still up at number one, mm-hmm. the John Grissom book. And uh, you know, as it was last week, that's just going to stay put there for a while, I think. Yeah, sure. Uh, doing, doing very well. And then uh, the only other debut on the hardcover fiction list, I have to go all the way down to line 20. And that is Blood Vow by J.R. Ward. This is the second book in her Black Dagger Legacy mm. series, which is a continuation of her Black Dagger Brotherhood series, incredibly popular, uh, romantic, paranormal series. And uh, in this case, uh, the second book in the spinoff is about a a brooding vampire warrior in training who teams up with a quick-witted aristocrat to solve a deadly mystery, Great, um, which is basically the tried and true J.R. Ward formula. Uh, Some fans were hoping that this one would have a same-sex romance at the center of it. It is not to be, Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we can always hold out hope for future installments in the series. But it's the kind of series where the series fans are taking bets about who's up next as each book features its own romantic pairing, uh, overcoming their own obstacles and finding something like a happy ever after. Right. Oh, great. And that's what we've got. That's it. Well, let's see here. Uh, at number two, Tools of Titans, the tactics, routines, and habits of billionaires, icons, and world-class performers by Timothy Ferris. Ferris is the, uh, he's an early stage technology advisor. He started with Uber, Facebook, Shopify, and uh, mm. he's he's been listed as one of the most innovative business people. His books include The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Body, The 4-Hour Chef. And this one is interviews with titans and game changers and basically 
kind of their routines and mm-hmm. what they do. So uh, not surprising right now. This looks like a really good gift book for that uh, someone uh, business in your life uh, who you really don't know what else to give to. I don't know. I mean, it sounds like a good book for that. Sure. <laughs> good read. Number four, The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds, Michael Lewis. And here we say definitely explores a timeless and fascinating subject, uh, which is human decision making through the intellectual intimate collaboration of two psychologists, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. We say in our review that uh, Lewis's latest effort is a joy to read, packed with aha moments, telling and at times hilarious details and elegant explanations of complex experiments and theories. So this is Michael Lewis. Not surprising that it's on the bestseller list. Uh, At number 16, we have the Whole30 Cookbook. This is from Melissa Hartwig. Uh, She's a sports nutritionist and the co-creator of the Whole30 Diet Plan, which so many fitness organizations, including various uh, CrossFit programs, have incorporated. It's uh, high-protein, low-carb, no-sugar. And this is the cookbook that goes along with that, and not surprising that it's on the bestseller list, really. We say that uh, that Herrig drives home the point that a burger served on a tomato slice is as delectable as one on a bun, and that meatballs do just as fine in cream sauce uh, made with coconut milk. Finally, at number 21, Jump, Take the Leap of Faith to Achieve Your Life of Abundance by Steve Harvey, uh, the comedian, uh, also a best-selling author. And um, this basically is advice, time for the new year, to uh, just kind of make sure you are abundant in life. And that's what we got. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we could all just uh, just make that happen? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I, I expect that when we come back in the new year, we're going to see a whole lot of those cookbooks and advice books. You're absolutely right. The charts. Absolutely right. I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Lodro Rinsler tells us how to take a Buddhist approach to love. We'll be right back. I'm Danica Kelly, author of Bestiary, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Lodro Rinsler on the line. His new book is Love Hurts. Hi, Lodro. I'm so glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. So tell us, why does love hurt, and what do we do when we're confronted with love that hurts? Well, it's interesting. You know, this book came out of a period of time that I spent, and this is probably the most bizarre writing story that you might have heard. I apologize in advance. But I wrote this book in the storefront window of this iconic story here called um, ABC Carpet and Home. And I met one-on-one with all of these people. And I thought, oh, it's going to be a book about love and romantic love and people breaking up and all these things. But I invited people, just complete strangers, to meet with me one-on-one and said, what is your experience of heartbreak? And I just held the space for them to tell their stories. And it was everything. It was, I gave my kid up for adoption so many years ago, and I don't know what happened to them, and that's heartbreaking. It was, I fell in love with my sponsor, and I relapsed, and Mm. that was heartbreaking. It's, I look exactly like that victim of police brutality, exactly like her, and that's heartbreaking. And it just became vaster and vaster. And so this book is really, it it became more about all the different ways that we offer our hearts, all the ways that we offer love, but then, of course, the heartbreak that comes with our expectations not being met, either by society, by an individual, or even by ourselves. 
So we quote you in our stark review uh, uh, of the book saying, the only way we can get through all our heartbreak is to sit in the middle of that terrible, devastating, world-changing experience. Uh, Tell us about that idea. The terrible, world-changing experience? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and and sitting through it, actually. Well, okay, so obviously, you know, the subtitle here is Buddhist Advice for the Heartbroken. So the the reveal, of course, is that I'm a meditation teacher. Um, I've been teaching meditation for about 15 years. I have a studio in Greenwich Village called Mindful MNDFL, and we're actually expanding to Upper East Side and Williamsburg, so there's going to be a couple of us around the city. But the idea here is that we can learn to literally sit with our experience, to actually bring the really intense emotions that surround our heartbreak to the meditation seat and actually learn that we can accommodate anything, essentially, that our hearts are actually very resilient. They bounce back much better and much quicker than we would ever give them credit for that even when something does feel like the ground's dropped up from under us or we feel broken, that we do have the capacity to heal and come back stronger if we're willing to actually look at our experience, if we're willing to stay with it as opposed to run away from it, tamp it down, distract ourselves with some unhealthy habits, etc. So um, we're seeing a lot of conversation right now in the world about feelings, uh, about what kinds of feelings are appropriate, about who gets to have feelings, about, um, you know, the the idea of whether, you know, for example, men should express their feelings or push them down, uh, about uh, whether hurt feelings are something to be indulged or something to be dismissed. How do you how do you work with these really big feelings at a time when when no one even knows what to do with feelings or 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 what they are? Yeah, I mean that is I think you sort of nailed it. My teacher Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche once said that great confusion and suffering exists because humanity cannot simply be. In other words, like we're not even touched with how we're feeling, how we actually are. And as a result, we act out in confusion, confusing ways. We act out in ways that are harmful to ourselves or others. When I would actually sit down with these people one-on-one and I would say, you know, how do you take care of yourself in the midst of heartbreak? Mm. The first thing that people would say is the thing that they know that they shouldn't do but do anyway. Well, I reach for the junk food and I overeat. I reach for the bottle and I drink too much. I get on Tinder and I hook up with someone. Anything to sort of cover over that actual ability to feel. So here I'm sort of proposing a pretty different approach that there's – the way the book is structured is a bazillion different chapters that are very short and they're structured around however you're actually feeling. So if you're feeling angry, there's literally a chapter that says if you feel angry and some advice for that. If you're feeling depressed, go to the chapter that says if you feel depressed. It's a little bit like choose your own adventure if you remember those books from when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of just – oh, I literally got an email. The book came out two days ago. And last night, I, I actually consider the book now a success because I got this email. Someone said, hey, I picked up your book today. I saw that there's a chapter that said, if you feel like you will never love again, and I flipped to it, and I actually totally connected. I don't feel so alone. Thank you. And yeah. that's already huge for me. I mean, that's that, in my mind, you know, screw rankings and sales and all that. Like, that's, that's it, you know, that someone actually said, oh, you get what I'm going through because you've gone through it. There's lots of teachings around this. This is actually helpful. And you also have one uh, uh, if you feel like you might need a good kick in the pants. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's different – some of this is sort of pacifying energy of like, hey, you're going to be okay. And some of this is, you know, 
a little bit of like get out of bed and have some right. food. Yeah. I, I feel like it might be a mistake down the road. The, the whole section around like if you feel like you can't eat is a good pep talk around that. But then I invite you to like literally take a picture of what you are eating to prove to me that you did it and then email it to me. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm just going to have all these strangers' foods show up in my inbox. But that's okay. It's the risk I take as a writer, I suppose. That's what I signed on for. But even that is is that moment of real human connection. I'm, you know, writing a book and sending the book out into the world is not the same as sitting in a shop window, uh, which was that very sort of simultaneously public and intimate experience. I mean, what, what was that even like to be kind of glassed in and yet connecting with people in this really personal way. Yeah, it, it was a bizarre writer's retreat, I'll tell you. Mm. Um, I knew that it wouldn't actually do for me to remove myself from people and go right in the woods somewhere. It wouldn't have been the same book. I needed to actually have it be more than my personal experience of heartbreak in order for it to be a more universal book. And um, it did feel a little bit at times like being a monkey in a cage because people would walk by and sort of knock on the window and say, what are you doing in there? I'm saying, I'm trying to write. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would spend the afternoons and evenings in that window. And it, it sort of, there were like people that come by regularly and we'd get in the habit of waving. Um, but in the mornings, it was this, as you said, very intimate time where I would meet one-on-one with people, um, strangers from all walks of life. And they would come in, and we'd literally have 20 minutes together. I'd sort of hold the space for them, and we wouldn't get through all of my questions. I only had four, but often we would only get through one or two. And the first question was always, what is your experience of heartbreak? And again, wide variety of experiences, Um, really sort of shocking. And people would actually come in and say, I thought I was going to talk about my most recent breakup, but it turns out I'm still really upset about my father dying. Mm. That's my experience of heartbreak today. And they would talk about that. Um, And then the second question, when they were done, I would say, how do you feel right now? And the interesting thing is having actually created some space where they could articulate how they are feeling, to go back to what you were saying before, Rose, uh, they felt something shift. Because they were heard and understood, something shifted within them that it felt looser or not as solid and permanent as it might have felt before. Question three was, how do you take care of yourself? And that's actually like there's a whole section of the book about just all of the things I learned from people about how to take care of yourself. And then four, is there something you could do today to take care of yourself? In other words, you know, look me in the eyes and tell me you're going to do it. Um, so they would leave that situation and go engage in exercise or seeing a friend or taking a long walk and actually taking care of themselves having done that cathartic experience. Is this an exercise that you think that um, people can – recreate in some small way in their own lives uh and what what would it be like if we all sat down with a friend and said you know how are you how are you feeling what's what's your heartbreak what can you do to take care of yourself um yes is the short form i was just thinking about the friend aspect because i think some part of it was the fact that i was a complete stranger to these people Mm. Right, and so they knew I, my job wasn't there to judge them or to tell them that they're bullshitting and they should like get over them. Like, no, I just hold the space, um, which I think is somehow more difficult with with close friends because they sort of might have that judgment lingering in the back of their mind. Right. Um, so I think yes, you could do it with a friend. I also think you could just do it as a journaling exercise mm-hmm. um, to put some time aside and just actually reflect on each question. I think you could even, if you hate journaling, you could just literally. 
contemplate these questions and voice your truth, just actually speaking it out loud is helpful. So there's a couple ways to do it, and I include those in the book as well. So I have two questions. First of all, how did you get this started at ABC Carpet? I I mean, what was the... Like, why did they ever let anyone ever do this? (laughs) Yeah, but also how how did the idea come to you to do it? How did you choose ABC Carpet? I mean, it's a great location. Um, And then how did they... (laughs) I'll let you do it. It's <laughs> yeah, a great question. Uh, so I'll, I'll sort of work my way backwards to the inspiration for this whole thing. But my last book was called How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People. And we did the launch party at ABC Carpet and Home that generously hosted mm-hmm. us. And it was at that point where I had finished the, you know, the last section of that book was on heartbreak. And I was like, oh, I could just keep going with this. So I did. And um, that became the heartbreak book eventually. But I really felt so compelled after having this launch. I really went straight from the book launch of How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People into the window. So I approached them that week and said, hey, while we're working together, what do you think about this crazy idea? And for whatever, I honestly don't know why they signed on. I think it was really so (laughs) generous of them. Um, I had to give credit where it's due. They they were really wonderful to host me. Uh, but they, I think halfway through they were like, Oh, you're still here. (laughs) You're you're still coming in every morning and doing this. Okay. Um, so they're, they're really lovely, but the inspiration for the book itself, I mean, not to get too personal, but it, it was a really, I mean, we all have stories of heartbreak and I think some might feel more pivotal than others. Mine really is 2012. So there's this period of time in 2012 where, for me, the bottom really just sort of dropped out. It was about eight weeks, starting with me losing my job, uh, which, of course, is always a blow to the ego, but it also threw me into complete financial instability. I'd been with this company for seven years. The whole department was eliminated. Mm. Very shocking. So I was a little heartbroken, a little groundless at that point. And then my fiancé this person who I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with woke up one day and realized that this was not what she wanted to do. And she moved overseas to London. And um, that was shocking as well and completely heartbreaking. But the straw that really broke the camel's back was the fact that uh, it was July 13th, 2012. One of my best friends from college died unexpectedly from heart failure Mm. um, at the age of 29. So he was young, he was healthy. There's no physical reason for him to have done that. But, I mean, that's basically what happens. They say, oh, his heart stopped working. So he died from heart failure, and I was devastated. And I, that was really it for me. The bottom was had dropped out. I was no longer taking care of myself. I was spending most of my time in bed. I wasn't eating well. After a lifetime of practicing meditation, at that point I had already been teaching meditation for 10 years. I couldn't even get to the cushion. I couldn't sit. I couldn't meditate. I, could, I wasn't exercising, none of it. But I had this great community of friends around me that were helping to take care of me even as I couldn't take care of myself. And they got me into therapy, and that got me back onto the meditation cushion. That got me to taking better care of myself and eating better and exercising and eventually getting good sleep. And coming back to the point where I'm not speaking at, to you guys at this point from a point of open wounds, but actually from a place of scars. Um, I would say the difference here being, you know, I carry that pain with me. It's not all of who I am. At that point, it, was, it felt like that was all of who I am. And I think there's many people out there who are carrying heartbreak, and that's sort of the defining trait for them. And, uh, you know, I think I realized during that time that I was not alone in experiencing heartbreak. It's such an isolating emotional experience, but 
coming off the other end of that and sort of being back at full fighting weight in the last couple of years, I said, oh, you know, this is an important topic. I don't see people talking about it in an open way. If I could open up a dialogue and make people feel not so alone, that would be huge. So tell us about some of the advice that you include in your book, um, maybe for people who are feeling the way that that you were feeling, that they couldn't sleep, they couldn't eat, they couldn't do the things that they knew would feel good because the whole concept of feeling good seemed inaccessible. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing with heartbreak that it doesn't feel like it will ever end. This is sort of like the good news about our emotional states, that even this difficult, gut-wrenching, totally depressing, frustrating experience is impermanent too like it's going to change and shift and that was my experience and i I feel like that's some of the very few pieces of really good news i can offer in the book not that this is actually a very downer book i think that does have a relatively good sense of humor considering the topic but between the various types of buddhist advice meditation practices that are in there i'm hoping that people can get to that point where they realize that even if they're in the bottom of the well now there is a way to get out of it We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Lodro Rinsler, author of Love Hurts. Um, so you're the author of half a dozen books now. Uh, the, I think my favorite title is The Buddha Walks Into a Bar. How does writing fit into your Buddhist practice, your, your meditative practice? That's an interesting one. You know, it's funny. I, it didn't actually land with me that I've written a half a dozen books until you just said that I wrote a half a dozen books. <laughs> it actually sounds like a lot now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not the sort of person that's like, oh, I've got to write every single day. I mean, I totally admire people that do that. Um, it's not a practice for me in the same way that my meditation practice is, that I do feel like I have to show up for that every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's um, actually the more I meditate, the more I actually create some sort of mental space the more creativity arises. The more, like, it literally feels like I'm rearranging the furniture of my mind so that I can actually, in the same way that if if you're the sort of writer that literally has to, like, spend the whole day, like, cleaning the house before you actually sit down and get to the computer. Uh-huh. You know, it sort of feels like that only mentally. Like, I honestly feel like I have to sit and sit and sit to the point where I can actually generate the ideas of, like, oh, that's exactly how I want to articulate this, and then I can sit down and write. So I do think there's a relationship there even though my writing practice is really more intentional. It's not, as, it's not an everyday thing. And uh, you, you mentioned that this, in some ways, came out, this book came out of a, a launch event. Last night you had uh, another launch event for this book, but uh, a, a sort of unconventional one. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we had a really great experience where we um, shared heartbreak stories. It was, I feel... No, we've had like a, in past experiences, we've had a roast, which is very bizarre, mm-hmm. um, where it's a couple of well-known Buddhist teachers and public figures. And um, literally, we would have people come up and, and roast each other. And um, yeah, I, when you think about it, it has very little to do with the topic of, for example, the Buddha walks into the office. Um, 
that said, here we realize we couldn't quite go that far. But my good friend Jeff Grow, who is in the habit of doing this, did a really skillful job of facilitating these heartbreak stories. One from uh, Buddhist teacher Ethan Nickturn, who wrote a book called The Road Home, um, which is sort of like that goofy first heartbreak and how it propelled him into the Buddhist practices. Um, we had a beautiful story from a woman named Erin Frankel who lost her husband on 9-11. Mm. The trauma, really, that, that she carries every time that someone brings up that event. Um, and Sharon Salzberg, I mean, really such a beautiful Buddhist icon, essentially. Uh, author of many, many books, including Loving Kindness and Real Happiness. And now Real Love is her next one. Talking about her teacher, or one of her teachers, Deepa Ma, and how she literally was on the, her deathbed from a broken heart and how meditation saved her. So really sort of a moving evening. And then I'm sort of sitting there like, I met with people in a window once. <laughs> <You know>? Like <laughs> everyone has their own heartbreak stories. But these, I found these to be really profound. Sitting in the window, writing these books, um, what has changed you? How do you change? Yeah, I mean, I think my understanding of heartbreak is just deeper. I think I, I didn't realize how vast and how many scenarios there were. And also just the ways that we perpetuate it. So, for example, there was a woman who met with me, and um, she told me the story that her grandmother died, which is not unexpected. We expect our grandparents to die at some point in our life. It was the fact that her grandmother died a week before her wedding. Mm. And she had so many expectations. She had picked out exactly where she was going to sit so that she could hear everyone because she was hard of hearing. She had picked out exactly what she was going to drink and what she was going to eat, who she was going to be seated next to, how she was going to introduce her to all of her friends, how she would act so sassy to certain ones. And then, of course, when she died, none of that would ever come to be. So it wasn't that her grandmother died. It's the fact that her expectations of how all of that would play out had died was really the heartbreaking thing for her. So I, for me, it was that moment of, oh, it's the realization that reality doesn't always meet our demands, that our expectations are so tightly wound up in our heads. And then when they, we aren't, when they aren't met, we become incredibly disappointed. And that's heartbreaking. That's sort of a universal thing, whether that's I thought we would always be together and now we're not. And that's heartbreaking because that was my expectation to I thought my father would be around to meet my grandkids and he's not. And that is heartbreaking. Right. So whatever our set expectations are, when reality steps on, it's like, nope, that's heartbreak. That's when our ego and our heart become so wounded. So I, I, it was really interesting for me to just understand that. And I think in a day-to-day practice, noticing when these expectations come, to answer your question more directly, Mark, um, and saying, oh, I totally have this expectation that we are going to do X, Y, and Z. And if I can loosen that, if my reality doesn't come to that way, then I probably will be less heartbroken. It's almost preemptive getting out of the way of heartbreak if we can sort of not hold our mind in such a fixed way. Which is a very Buddhist idea of letting go of attachment, which in this case is an attachment to an imagined future. Exactly. Yes. So you've got an advice uh, an advice column for uh, Huffington Post. Um, what, what trends have you noticed in your advice column recently, maybe? Well, you know, I don't think it would surprise anyone that some people are feeling heartbroken around the election. Mm-hmm. Um, that there are people 
who feel like there is something bubbling right beneath the surface of our society, and now it's really come to the forefront of it in terms of systemic racism, hatred, classism, you name it. Um, and this is not, a, by the way, this is not even me saying like a particular party. I think that there's lots of things coming up on both sides of the aisle that people are saying, I don't know how to deal with these people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's just that, like literally that, like I don't know how to deal with these people. Particularly here, you know, it is at the hol- time of the holidays. Everyone's going home to see their racist uncle. What do I do with that now? You know, like it's really sort of a pretty potent time that people are feeling the societal heartbreak. In addition to um, someone over at Shambhala Publications used this term I hadn't heard it before, but I totally understand it, the turkey dump. Uh, where particularly young people who are at college um, break up with their partner before going home so that they don't have to introduce them to the parents. Oh. So it's like, <laughs> so there's that too. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't either. Oh, That's right? awful. <laughs> oh, man. Actually, I don't want to introduce you to my grandmother, so we're over. Um, wow. Yeah, it's the real thing. So it's been really interesting to sort of get it from all angles. I mean, young, old, all of us experience heartbreak. Um, in different forms. But I've, I've had a sort of balancing experience lately of a lot of my friends who have been feeling various kinds of heartbreak or shock have come together in love in, in a very deliberate, potent way. Um, is that something that you've also sort of gotten a glimmer of? I know that as an advice columnist, you mostly hear from people who are sad. So <laughs> you, 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 may not, you may not hear so much about the coping mechanisms. That's true. But at the same time, you know, I also, in addition to the advice column and writing on my own, I run this thing called Mindful, which is a really vibrant meditation community. And right. people come in and we actually had a situation. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, there's, what is it, 8 million people in New York City? And within a week, um, this one woman came in and she was heartbroken because she was going through a breakup and she bought an unlimited membership and started coming every day. And three days later, who walks in, gets an unlimited membership, but her ex-boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> right? So it's, wow. it's, oh, people are starting to see that this meditation thing can help them with the strong emotions that they're going through. And also there's an element here of like, I need a community that can support me. And that's also grappling with their suffering in its many forms that's going to be helpful for me along the way. So people are looking for it, even though it's like now it's so many people that you can't even escape your ex from it. <laughs> so, so what happened? I, I don't, you know, if, if you can't say because of confidentiality or, or, or what have you, but, um, you know, did they, did they run into each other? At a, they did. They at were very civil and very nice to each other. I mean, it actually felt like a, probably a relatively good debrief if you had to see your, your partner regularly or your ex-partner regularly, that they would actually be... In these little transient moments, I'm coming out of class, I got to run right now, you mm-hmm. know, so it's like five seconds of conversation, just being civil. But I ran into uh, the woman in the re- who, in, who was leaving the relationship just the other day uh, on the streets, and she was with someone who also was a mindful community member. I said, oh, I didn't know you guys knew each other. And she said, oh, no, I met her while I was coming to mindful. We've become like best friends. Oh, Yeah, so it's like even out of that, she came and she found people who she could relate mm-hmm. to who are going through similar things and, you know, I see them one more, less and less because they, they've really established meditation practice on their own, but it's wonderful that they now have community to support them in this endeavor. So how do you go about translating 
um, these sort of age-old Buddhist ideas for a modern audience. Obviously, you have this sort of very, uh, dare, dare I say, hip approach. Uh, you, you know, you're you're talking about working in the office. You're talking about dealing with going home for the holidays. You're you're really aiming your works at um, you know younger people, professional age people. So, how do you make that translation? Yeah, I mean, for me, going back to the very first book, The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, I realized it, it stemmed from this moment, actually, and I think about it. I was reading Pema Chodron's book, I think it was When Things Fall Apart, where she talks about in the very first chapter coming home and realizing that her marriage was falling apart and she had to get a divorce. And I was going through a breakup at that time. But I realized I had never gone through a divorce. That was completely different than what I had done. So... I was saying, who's done this? Who's done that like quarter life breakup, that your first big love? I couldn't find anyone. That really said, okay, I want to try and open up this conversation. And that's how that book was born. So I think, you know, for me, it's always, I, I used to be, I, that, after that first book came out, the Boston Phoenix called me the cool kids Buddhist, which I feel like <laughs> I, don't get to, I don't get to have that title anymore because it's like been six years. I'm in my mid 30s. You know, it's like, I suppose these things are relative, but, you know, I don't feel like, you know, I think it was, I was a kid maybe six years ago and I'm like a teenager. Um, <laughs> but it's, I do think it's really important to just speak from my own perspective, which I don't think is not, I don't think it's alienating to anyone. In fact, I get emails from readers all the time who are in their 50s, 60s and assume that they are not the usual reader, but of course I hear from them all the time. Yeah. Um, I think the aspect of heartbreak is a universal thing, but the idea of being able to talk about this in very plain language, I mean, I can only represent my own voice, of course. And I joke that I have two things I can represent, really. One is <clears throat> the great wisdom of my teachers that I try to study and take in as much as I can. And then literally, if there's any mistake to be made in the spiritual journey, I've made it. And learn from it. And hopefully I can share that too. So that's sort of the two ways that I try to translate through those two lenses. And now as we're going into the holidays, um, what advice might you have? What what kinds of uh, questions are you getting right now, these particular holidays, the New Year's, Christmas, Hanukkah? Yeah, I mean, I bet it's not surprising. It's a lot of stuff around travel stress, family stress, mm -hmm. work parties. Um, social anxiety, mm -hmm. just sheer exhaustion. It feels like so many people are really working so hard and they're like, okay, but on the 23rd, I just collapse and then I don't have to talk to anyone. But, oh, wait, I have to go see my family and they're going to want to talk to me. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's a lot of that. That's sort of like, okay, how do I deal with just the day-to-day -day stress of this particularly busy season? And also, how do I deal with my family? Um, and particularly in ways that don't feel healthy. So is there an alternative? And the great Tibetan Buddhist teacher Chogun Trungpa Rinpoche once said, um, everything is predetermined until now. And I love that idea. Like mm. the relationship we have with our family when we go home, it's totally predetermined based on us doing the same song and dance for however many decades. But in this very moment, we could do something completely different. And when we do, we open up the space for other people to do things differently too. So that's, I mean, it's really an interesting dance that we do. Um, can we actually shift the dynamic in our own homes, in our own families? 
sometimes that doesn't always go so well. I mean, if you're going home to see the racist uncle and for 20 years you've said, yeah, okay, whatever, Uncle Chad, and this time you say, look, that's really not okay, you're, you're changing things, but um, the space you open up may be a very challenging one. A hundred percent. And I mean, it's, it's brave. <clears throat> you know, it's literally an act of bravery to say, no, 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 I'm not going to schlep through this. I'm actually going to wake up and I'm going to try and be of benefit. And that doesn't always just feel like saying the nice thing. It's actually sometimes much worse. It's actually like putting yourself out there in a vulnerable position. I was actually, someone wrote me the other day, having read an excerpt from Love Hurts and shared a story where she and her brother went 10 years without speaking to each other. And it was his decision and she didn't understand it. And he had said, I, you hurt me so badly. I can't have you in my life. She had no understanding what was going on. And once a year, she would reach out and just try and put herself out there. Hmm. trying to restore the relationship. And sometimes she would be ignored. Other times he would yell at her. And then literally in year 10, she reached out again and he, re- he responded. And he said, actually, I've been diagnosed as being bipolar. And he was in the process of being treated. And he said he was pretty sure he had done some horrible things to her, but he couldn't even remember what they were. And he was sorry. She was able to let it go. He was able to let it go. And she drove 10 hours that day just to see him. And they now have a relationship. Mm. So it's that aspect of just continuously showing up for that human being that really made a world of difference. So what's next on your plate? Um, another another residency? Something entirely different? You said you're opening up to more outposts of your meditation center? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think uh, instead of the cool kids Buddhist, it should be like the masochist Buddhist. Uh, <laughs> because there's something a little masochistic about launching a book and two new studios. And we also like brought our um, meditation teachers online. So people who wanted to actually like connect to the experience here at Mindful, there's beautiful meditation videos online now too on our website. And um, it's just, it, yeah, I think right now it feels like a lot of expansion, putting this book out into the world. And now it's a period of stabilization, just really connecting with communities about this book, about this important topic. And then, um, moving into the point of really making sure that people feel supported and that mindfuls and all of the various locations of New York City actually can accommodate them and help them hold their heart. We've been talking with Lodra Rinsler, and you can find his book, Love Hurts, in stores right now. Lodra, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot reveals PW's Person of the Year for 2016. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs, and here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about PW's 2016 Person of the Year. So, Jim, who is it? Now, won't keep you in suspense any longer, Mark. It is Dominique Rocca, who's uh-huh. the founder and CEO of Sourcebooks. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about why we made that decision. Well, Dominique has been in the industry for almost 30 years. She founded Sourcebooks in 1987. And as, as she told us when we were uh, discussing her, her year, that... Um, she never thought she'd make a million dollars in the industry, and now they publish over 
500 titles annually uh, during the course of the year. They sold their one millionth unit. Wow. And they have uh, a staff of 130 just about. And, and wow. In addition to all of that, she's pretty well known as um, an industry visionary. She received the Book Industry Study Group's uh, Innovator of the Year Award this year. And Sourcebooks was also picked as a uh, rising star in uh, ReaderLink, the, the wholesalers' uh, kind of year-end awards. So tell us about some of the, some of the things she's credited for innovating. Well, one of the things that when we were talking to her that she brought up was, and this may not sound that much of an innovation in 2016, but... Uh, she put together some multimedia packages in the 80s. And what she did was packaged really well-done photography books with audio CDs. And she did them on such things as uh, we interrupt this broadcast Mm -hmm. and the crowd goes wild. Mm -hmm. So what that did, these were two books that really lent themselves to, to an audio since you can probably tell by the names of, of the, the, the books that they were about uh, moments really in pretty much in radio history. Um, so it, it was really did, and it did really well. And so that encouraged her to do some other things that included an audio component, and one of which was uh, uh, poetry. Mm. And when she started to do, again, she thought poetry should be heard, mm-hmm. and, you know, not, not just read. So she did a, she packaged some audio, Poetry Speaks, um, and that also was pretty successful. And that led to doing Poetry Speaks for Children. So she had this whole, this whole multimedia line going, and, and it did really well for, for a number of years. And I think that encouraged her to look uh, more and more into what uh, digital publishing could offer when that started coming along. And you know, I'm I'm told she's a very hands-on person. You know, it's it's not every 130-person publishing company where <laughs> where the founder wants to talk to you about your jacket copy. But she's she's really interested and invested uh, at every step of the way. Yes, uh, that's, that's certainly the case. Uh, she, what's her company? And she's really quite passionate about about what she's doing. And she really believes that technology can help make a difference in delivering uh, a better reading experience, you know, for, for readers, but, you know, also helping out, you know, booksellers and authors in delivering uh, the message that they wanted, wanted to deliver. Well, it sounds like she's an excellent choice. And uh, we've also got some notables that we wanted to mention. Tell us a bit about those. Well, um, we have five. We've picked five or six every year. Um, and one of them, which uh, this is in alphabetical order, if I can do it correctly, is Carla Hayden, who uh, is the new U.S. Librarian of Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was appointed by President Obama early in the year and finally confirmed later in the year after a couple of sticking points, but nonetheless, she's there now. And, you know, a couple of notable things is, you know, the Library of Congress has been criticized for a long time for being kind of stuck in the, the the old the old days as the digital age you know moves forward, and everybody thinks she's going to be uh, 
a great choice. And a couple other things is she is the first woman of color to hold a position, as well as the first woman, period. Right. So um, some, some milestones made there. Wow. But, you know, I really think it's also important, again, to, to emphasize that. They really think she can bring the Library of Congress into, into the 21st century. Um, and then we have uh, another person is Ruby Cower. She's a best-selling poet that not, not, maybe not everybody has heard of, but we thought she was uh, worth pointing out in that she's a 24-year-old Canadian um, who has sold a million copies of her one poetry collection called Milk and Honey. Uh, she has a background in spoken word audio. Uh, she had self-published this uh, collection before uh, Andrews McNeil signed her up, and she's been, you know, just a wonderful success story, and has really um, been resonating with, with women that, of all ages, but particularly in 20s and 30s, who really seem to uh, understand and appreciate the message she, she's doing in her, her books. Um, next up uh, is Marcus Lever, who is the CEO of Quarto Group. You know, they're based over in the UK, but about half their business is in the U.S., and over the last year, he bought three three companies here. Um, so he is uh, building up Quarto uh, to, to almost a $200 million level, which mm-hmm. makes them one of the largest publishers uh, in the world, actually, on the trade side. <laughs> um, so uh, fourth up is Lisa Lucas, who is the new executive director of the National Book Foundation. Um, she took over beginning of the year and has added a, a real vitality to the to the organization. Um, one of her main objectives is to try to broaden, you know, the appeal of books, which you know still has somewhat of a elitist maybe or a snobby attitude. But her her goal is to think, you know, to make it clear that you know anybody can enjoy books. You don't have to, you know, as she says, you know, uh, have tortoiseshell glasses. Right. Right. And then finally, we have Susan Nossel, who's the Executive Director of American Pen, um, and you know, Pen has had a big year. Um, they've developed a lot more programs, and uh, you know, to the, to guard, to protect free speech and free expression. And the choice we were debating who our fifth or sixth person should be, and then after the election of President-elect Trump and some of his stances on the First Amendment and libel laws and all that sort of thing, we thought uh, Susan would, you know, it was, it was really important uh, that we have somebody up there who, you know, is a firm supporter of, of free speech. And as she said to us, uh, this is a moment where we have to make some noise. So they're uh, going to keep an eye on what's going on, um, you know, with, with the administration. Well, that sounds like a really excellent collection and, and very much, very timely. I think you know, sometimes you get notables who are sort of on the list because, you know, how come we haven't done this person before? They've been around a while. They've been doing great stuff. It's time somebody recognized them. But these are people who are doing great work right now. I think that's a great point. Yeah, we, we, I mean, you know, we'll plead guilty to maybe doing somebody who is retiring, so it's about time we... Um, you know, recognize them. But yeah, this is uh, all newcomers. So I hope they don't let us down. And I'm sure they won't. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll look back on it in a few years and uh, see whether we were right. 
<laughs> yes, indeed. Well, Jim, thank you so much. Um, always great to have you on the show, and we very much appreciate this recap. Uh, hey, great. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jim. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hello, I am Lawrence Levy, author of To Pixar and Beyond, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're on vacation for the next two weeks, but tune in for some of our favorite interviews from the archives. We'll be back in January with lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 